welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Cale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Again, welcome this morning. Um, I want to notice some discrepancies in the reading of the lessons uh, owing to translations and various things that translations do uh, to Scripture. Um, the insatiable need for publishers to publish and to sell books. Uh, sometimes, uh, I think, at the compromise and expense of the holy text which they are dealing with. Uh, and so it is good to hear, uh, to be able to hear and to see some of the subtleties that happen uh, in translation. Um, this week we're going to take a, a brief look at the uh, the text together in Mark's Gospel. We've been reading in Mark's Gospel throughout this liturgical year and will until uh, well into the fall. And then we'll switch over to Luke's Gospel for the next year of reading and cycle. But next week I want to take uh, from Luke's Gospel, uh, and we'll deviate from the lectionary, I want to take from Luke's Gospel uh, to carry on what I'm going to begin from Mark's Gospel this week. Next week, uh, three parables. We're going to take on three parables together. Had we time on this Father's Day weekend, uh, I would have uh, would have done both together. Uh, time doesn't permit that. But uh, next week, three parables that are only in Luke's gospel. Okay, you're going to know all three. They are found only in Luke's gospel: the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the missing coin, 
the parable of the prodigal son. Sadly, <laughs> the three parables have absolutely nothing to do with a lost sheep, a lost coin, or a prodigal son. They've gotten those, uh, uh, those editorial um, titles uh, over time, and they stuck. And we're going to take those apart next week. And we're going to look at the parables as I think far more authentically Jesus intended us to understand them. But let's begin this week then uh, with, a, with a quick examination of the uh, uh, Markan text uh, that you have just heard and that you have before you in slightly different uh, language. First of all, Jesus' parables. Okay, Jesus' parables. Today they would begin once upon a time. Okay, parables are not Jesus re- recalling or recounting something that took place that he saw once or heard about. Rather, these are stories crafted in Jesus' own uh, mind during his public appearances in order to create mental images and pictures in the, the minds of his hearers. And we recognize as we listen to Jesus' parables that, um, that they most often uh, inflict judgment upon the outsiders but become paths of illumination for the insiders. Okay? To Jesus' antagonists and his opponents, Jesus' parables were edgy stuff. And to the disciples, as Mark says, uh, they became paths of illumination uh, to the extent that in private, Jesus would uh, elucidate the, uh, uh, the parables and give them greater insight, he explained everything in Mark's simple words. But uh, for the outsiders, outside what? I'm going to suggest here this morning, outside the kingdom of God, that cryptic, mysterious uh, three-word phrase, the kingdom of God. What is it? Where is it? How is it? We'll touch on that. Well, Mark said it plainly, the kingdom of God, that's how he begins the parable. See, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed, would scatter seed. And Mark concluded the scene that is put before us this morning uh, by writing, Jesus did not speak to them, that is, teach publicly, except in parables. But he explained everything in private to his disciples. So we got the outside and the inside. Outsiders, insiders. Those who found themselves on the receiving end of Jesus' oft-used parables knew, they just knew. Jesus' words were intended for them and intended to sting. But at the same time, even his opponents realized that there was no denying the truth in what Jesus was saying. Time and again, a parable would send Jesus' critics away either maddingly frustrated or scratching their heads at what had just transpired. In retelling Jesus' parables, therefore, the church, the church must not forget that by the time of the authorship of the New Testament, By the time the Gospels were being written down, the lot of Christians in this world, it was not peaceful. It was not a gentle experience. Not unlike that of Christians today 
who live in the lands controlled by Islamic fundamentalism. Followers of Jesus held no rights, no liberties, and were indeed, and in fact, targets for those who hated. To borrow a phrase you'll hear today, haters got to hate. Okay. By the first and second centuries, Christians were the scapegoats of imperial Rome. Christians were the scapegoats because Rome was falling apart. It was morally and socially so decayed that its collapse was becoming increasingly inevitable and visible. And those who still clung to power, uh, such as Nero, needed a scapegoat. They needed someone to deflect blame, responsibility, and attention for the circumstances upon, and the Christians were the ones that were chosen. Okay? Christians were the scapegoats for Rome, much as Jews became scapegoats in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. So it's not surprising, then, as we consider that, that Jesus' parables had held special place for the community of faith um, in those early centuries. They were words that were true in their deepest meaning and yet elusive to those who were outside. Parables allowed Jesus room to say what was true without being immediately shut down. So too the church as the New Testament was being written. Jesus was master at getting his message out and at the same time frustrating those who sought to silence him. In crafting parables, one of the things that we notice is that Jesus very often drew upon the shared and common experience of his audience. Jesus depended upon that for them to be able to glean the meaning of what he was saying. Jesus drew upon their shared and common experience. In Mark 4, Jesus touched upon the mystery, and in the first century, It was really mystery of the seed, of the seed, okay? Like seed, I believe Jesus knew his disciples would grow and his church expand and thus the kingdom of God become present. Jesus knew what was yet mystery to the twelve. Simply put, Jesus knew that they understood that one plants the seed and then you must wait. Without further instruction or even activity on your part, the seed, the seed itself knows how to sprout and grow. In Greek, the word Mark used, automate, automate. Sound familiar? Automatically or literally in Greek by itself, automate. This, Jesus said, was how the kingdom of God was going to come about. Okay? This is how it's going to come about. The planting of the seed and the inevitable consequence of that planting. Now, Jesus' words, in in so speaking, ran contrary to the popular notion of the day when it was believed that God's kingdom would come suddenly and all at once and with very political implications. No, Jesus said... First the stalk, and then the head, then the full grain. Or, as I read, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. I like that better. Ripe, when the time was ripe. 
Jesus counseled patient persistence. Does that sound like uh, oxymoron? Patient persistence? This was a deep mystery, this patient persistence. Um, Certainly everybody understood that God was deep within the seed somehow, else the seed would not know to do what the seed would do. And God was deep within the earth, the cycles of seasons. God would bring about the, uh, the purpose of the seed. God would fulfill the purpose of the seed, and God would bring about the kingdom of God. <coughs> How else but God could such a mystery take place and play out? What was required, Jesus said, what would be required of the sower, the someone, or the man in the parable, was patience, tempered with measured action when the time was right. Patient persistence. For when the time was right, when the grain was ripe, that same someone, that same man, was to gather the grain because, in Jesus' words, the harvest would have come. There, in action, would be horribly wrong. Jesus' second parable, then laid, overlaid right, right next to the first in Mark's Gospel, uh, reminded the disciples that one can never quite tell by appearances what God has in mind. Can't judge a book by its cover. You can never tell by just looking what it is God has in mind. The Messianic kingdom indeed did and would go unnoticed at first, just a handful of men and women with odd teaching and odd values and odd uh, odd beliefs about the resurrection of a dead man. Again, consider that when the seed is planted also, it bears no obvious relationship to what it was to become and would become over time in fulfillment of its purpose. In the shared experience of Jesus' audience, it was the mustard seed. I, I, I suppose botanists, if you're out there, you could name some seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed. But in the shared experience, again, back to that shared experience, common experience of Jesus' audience, it was the mustard seed that held the distinction of being the smallest seed on earth. And yet, as everyone knew from such a small beginning, grew what is called the greatest of all shrubs. So I did a little checking, and that mustard seed would grow into a, a bush, a plant, a shrub, measuring sometimes three feet by nine feet. Pretty big, pretty good size. Such, in Jesus' estimation, would be the coming of the kingdom of God. From what seemed as though near nothing, something really quite amazing and beneficial and good, God's will. From the smallest and most humble of beginnings in Galilee, of all places, in the first century of all time, Jesus' church would become the global church. The church as we are beginning to see it, even in its post-infancy, but nowhere near fulfilled growth. I, aside, ask you today, did you realize that even the global church of which I speak has now grown beyond earth's bounds? The church 
that started there as this little seed has grown. It grew, it reached out around the globe. And, 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 and again, as an aside, when uh, the, um, during the time of exploration, you know, when Christopher Columbus discovered Indians, in reality, landing on this continent uh, that uh, he thought he'd found India, but the subcontinent uh, uh, remained isolated for some time longer until eventually European explorers made contact. Do you know what happened when they made contact? The missionaries, which traveled with them, along with military contingent, they had missionaries. The missionaries go into that uh, uh, massive population of people to tell them about Jesus. And, uh, and hearing about Jesus, uh, uh, there were communities there in India who said, oh, Martoma, Martoma. And they discovered that they were saying, St. Thomas, St. Thomas. He told us about Jesus. And they found actual communities in India that had existed from the time of, yeah, that Thomas. Okay, when the church began to spread. I find that interesting as, as evidence of how the tentacles, if you will, were reaching both around the globe, but now also off earth's bounds. I see enough gray hair out there, but a few, Mason, you won't remember this. Blaine, I think you're too young. I know you're too young. Uh, Christmas Eve. 1968, orbiting the moon, the crew of Apollo 8 began reading the creation story from the Bible. And then it was on a sultry 20th of June the next year, 1969, I remember the day vividly, the church found its way to the moon when Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz Aldrin took Holy Communion on the lunar surface. If Jesus' parables puzzled and confounded his audience, imagine if they were told that both word and sacrament would reach into space, into the heavens, and to the surface of the moon that they could see, but in no way touch. If you didn't know that, it's good to put into your general body of knowledge. And if you did, we probably haven't reminded ourselves of that in a while. But you see, both reinforce Jesus' perspective on how the church and the kingdom of God would grow, would begin from that small event in which they were all participating and expand and fill the world and now beyond the reaches of the world. The church would grow with patient persistence. The phrase I think I came up with, it's going to be in like uh, three days, three days, five years ago, uh, when I had uh, surgery. Some of you will recall that. And I recall after that, six months of chemotherapy every other week. Um, patient persistence was a phrase that I coined for myself. And so the church would grow with patient persistence. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing in reaching the goal. Not the end of treatments, but the end being the kingdom of God. And so the church grows with patient persistence, patient as it has for now 2,000 years. And in its preparatory time, thousands before that, as Israel fulfilled God's purpose. Persistent 
as neither the animosity of the world nor the physical bounds of earth have successfully stood in its way. And so I close this morning with the question, where will you take the kingdom? Where will you take the kingdom of God? Now, as I look around, we're unlikely, maybe, again, may say hate to pick on you, but you might be the exception here, uh, to go to the moon or someplace far distant. Um, but we will end up staying, most of us here where we're planted. But if we will, with patient persistence, uh, seek to fulfill that to which we are called, we too will have done our part in bringing the kingdom of God ever nearer ever near. So on this Father's Day, particularly to fathers and grandfathers, uh, remember to be examples uh, to your children and to your grandchildren, because in this day and age, this time and place, where boys masquerade as men, and men are guilt-shamed into silence, both then and beyond the church, we have to ask ourselves, how shall we live? As an aside, I shared this morning at the, at the VA. A couple of insurance, I never contact people, but I sent an email to an insurance company and told them how offensive I found as a man uh, that I found their advertising, two commercials, uh, insurance company in particular, man shaming to sell insurance. One uh, young couple looking at the ceiling where a pipe had burst and caused uh, water damage to the ceiling. And the young man says to the young woman, oh, it's, it's a burst pipe. I can totally fix that. And the response was a derisive, <laughs> and then an instructive, no. To reinforce that at the end when the contractor had successfully Fixed it, you know, he says, you know, I think I probably could have. No, he is told, like speaking to an animal. No. Okay, second one, same company. The woman walks into the kitchen and the man's looking in the refrigerator. And she announces, pretty cool, we got a refund from our insurance company on our homeowners because we didn't use it. And the man says, well, it seems reasonable, you know. And then, poking him in the side, she said, too bad we don't get money back on gym memberships. The response on this Father's Day was a look of chagrin. That ain't enough. Full head drop in shame. Okay? We don't need to man shame on Father's Day. We don't need, nor should we have tolerance for uh, any similar such thing against our mothers, wives, and daughters. Why must we be in this conflict all the time? There's always been those who would silence the message of the church, and uh, I don't want to get too far off the beaten track because I recognize that I've wandered a bit. But there's always been those who would silence the message of the church, uh, that the church exists to share, okay? That it exists to share, like the seed, to grow. But I ask on this Father's Day that I recognize, and we all know, that there's, there are those who are spiritually just vacant 
as men. I think that's part of the consequence of what we've been about very subtly, very effectively, uh, culturally. Or perhaps spiritually naive. Or those who were once uh, far more spiritually minded uh, but have drifted or given it all away. Spiritually timid men, but otherwise bold and brash in life. Where are they? What has happened to us? There will always be weeds within the church that must be addressed, and we recognize that. Also, let us recognize that denominations, they come and go. (laughs) Denominations are a frightful thing. They consume one another and then create more. Reformations happen. But you see, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it's, it's not denominationalized. It is the very agency by which the kingdom of God will come. That kingdom which will abide forever. And the church moves ever nearer that kingdom and the harvest of which Jesus spoke. Sowing and harvesting the cycles of life. They belong to God. And we most certainly belong to God's kingdom. Amen.
We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 Kale Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.